0: Welcome to the business of family. I'm your host, Mike Boyd, and this is my look into the world of multi generational wealth creation, family enterprise, stewardship, family office investing, and the curation of a legacy. On the podcast, I interview members of some of the world's most interesting families to hear how they pass knowledge, resources, values, and wealth to the next generation. I hope you'll enjoy sharing this learning journey with me and would greatly appreciate any feedback, resources, or referrals you have to offer. To sign up to my weekly business of family newsletter, go to newsletter.mikeboyd.com.au. Richard Yu is a fourth generation Yu. His grandfather was tycoon and philanthropist Yu Tong Sen, who remains a legend in Singapore for the vast commercial empire he built across Southeast Asia in the early 1900s. Tong Seng had 11 wives with whom he had 24 children, setting the stage for a complex and conflicted period of succession following his death in 1941. One of the family's last remaining businesses, Yu Yang Seng, a network of traditional Chinese medicine dispensaries, was founded by Richard Yu's great-grandfather, Yu Kong, and the family's fifth generation are still in the business today. This is a gripping story of family politics, loss of control, reconsolidation, an IPO, and ultimately privatization of the family firm once again. It is my great pleasure to welcome Richard Yu to the show. Richard, thank you so much for being here to share your story today.
1: Thanks for inviting me, Mike. I'm
0: really looking forward to this one. Now, you're the fourth-generation Yu family member to lead Yu Yan Sang business. However, the family's ownership and succession story hasn't always been smooth. Can you please share with us the origin story of the business and a brief history of its stewardship from founding through until the third generation?
1: Sure. The business was actually founded in 1879, by my great-grandfather. His name was Yu Kong. He had um, emigrated from southern China as a teenager and worked around northern Malaya at the time, eventually becoming a tin miner in the town of Goping, which is in the state of Perak, in what is now uh, Malaysia. In those days, the workers, the coolies in the tin mines, had no access to any kind of healthcare. And it was like just uh, prospecting in the fields, So at the same time, the authorities, when they granted a license, they called them revenue farms. When they granted a license for tin mining, they usually forced the miners to also take on revenue farms for opium as well. And so the workers were given access to opium and was kind of used as an all-purpose cure-all, I suppose you can call it, because there was no health care. And so many many of the coolies got addicted to opium and my great grandfather thought that uh, this was not good because they wanted to uh, try and make enough money to send back home so he was trying to figure out what what was better to what was the best thing for the for the workers and he decided that he would import medicinal herbs from china and so he started a shop called yansang in Gopeng, and he brought in herbs from China, which he then dispensed to his workers. And eventually, they were also sold to the locals. And that was the origins of the of the shop, Yansang. My great-grandfather passed away when he was in his late 30s. And the business was inherited by my grandfather, who was then a young teenager. So he, it was kept on, under some sort of trusteeship until he was old enough to take charge of the businesses that was left by his father. And my grandfather, Yu Tong Singh, continued with tin mining and also with the Yansang shop. He, he later on renamed it as Yu Yansang. And as his tin mining business prospered, so he also opened branches in the towns wherever he had an office. So from Goping, he went to Kampa, Ipoh, and then down south to KL, Saramban, and eventually ending up in Singapore in 1910. And um, then the business then expanded into southern China, the Yu business, because it also provided remittance services for the coolies to send the money back. So Hong Kong and Guangzhou branches were set up. And Yu at that time, this would be in the 1910s, 1920s, was very active in remittances. And a lot of money was sent back from Malaya back to, these, uh, to southern China. Fast forward, my grandfather lived in Hong Kong until he died in 1941. And the business was then inherited by my father and, his, and my uncles. So my father had 12 brothers. There were 13 sons. They inherited the entire business empire of my grandfather. And they only could take charge of it after the war, by which time um, the authorities also retrospectively Passed uh, state duty laws, and a lot of the uh, state duty had to be paid. And in, in the late, from the late forties onwards, and a lot of businesses that were held by my grandfather, a lot of businesses and assets had to be sold at, at very low prices so to just to pay the death duties. Fortunately, the Song business was kept. Eventually, some of the other businesses were also kept, but they were either sold or like the tin mines basically ran out. So by the end of the 1980s, uh, this was the only business that was left from my grandfather's day. I wanted to try and have a go at managing the business, but because of family politics, it was very difficult to do so. I'd been working for many years by that time, but my one uncle retired at the age of 70, who was at that time an executive director of Yuen And I put my hand up to say, "Okay, let me give me a chance to run this." But unfortunately, uh, some of the other uncles were not happy with that, and so there was a uh, there was a sellout. We lost the business, and then. But I, I I had already joined it, and after a couple of years, I had a chance to do a buyout. So very briefly, that was the story up to the early nineties. I joined in 1989, and I became the. Um, managing director of the business in the early 90s.
0: So a couple of follow-ups on that, Richard, if you don't mind. You mentioned, I think, there were 13 sons. I assume that there were also daughters who did not inherit anything. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So my, my grandfather had 24 children, 13 sons and 11 daughters. He had a total of 11 wives, but of the 11 wives, only seven had children. Some of the wives that... Didn't have any sons, were also kind of um, left on the wayside, as it were. The business was passed on to my father and, and uncles, and they were they were shared fairly equally amongst the thirteen of them. Whilst the girls didn't get a share of the business, but they were all given a sum of money as dowry, so when they got married, but there was a dowry that went along with it, and that was about it. Interesting.
0: And what age were you when you joined the business and I guess I'd also like to ask, was that always a predetermined path that you were going to join the family business or had you considered your own pursuits as well?
1: No, I I joined the business when I was 42 years old. I had graduated from my early 20s and I worked for about 18 years before I joined the business. My father told me when I was still studying that I would not expect to be able to work in any of the family businesses after graduation, because of the family politics, basically the uncles all, all of all 13 of them sat on the board, and they did not allow the next generation to get involved in the business at all. So I, I was able to accompany my father to some of the board meetings for various companies and also for the estate matters. So my grandfather's estate took 50 years to wind up by was and my brand yeah. And so there were still meetings of, of the estate right through to the 70s and early 80s. So it's just, it was just very, it was very tiresome. Yeah. So I, anyway, the, the long story short, I, because my uncle retired as an executive director, my father asked the other independent directors, the non-family directors for the company, if I was able to join. and I, And they said, okay. So that's what I did. Terrific.
0: Richard, 13 sons or or your father and his uncles, what was it like when they were trying to operate the business with a board full of siblings? Did things operate smoothly at that time or were there already some factions forming and family politics at that level?
1: Yeah, I think nothing ran smoothly. I think there were factions amongst the different brothers who came from different mothers. So there were, different, there were several groups There was also a difference between the older uncles and the younger ones. And I think the younger uncles actually were more entrepreneurial, but they they were frustrated by the the older brothers because the older brothers just did not buy into their ideas. So most of my uncles actually pursued their own career paths. And some of them were very successful in their own right as entrepreneurs. The older uncles tended to dominate, but they dominated by basically blocking most of the ideas. And so all the businesses were run by non-family, either persons or or management companies, especially the, for example, the tin mines and the rubber estates were run by independent companies. Whilst the, the Yu Sung was run by Uncle, who was, as I said, was the executive director. This was the Singapore-Malaysia business which in in fact was listed in uh, 1973 or so. It was listed on the Singapore Exchange then, but it was a very small company. And uh, actually, it it never really grew. It remained about the same size all the way through until um, I joined the business.
0: So let's talk about when you joined the business. You went through a, a period of trying to consolidate the fragmented shareholding group under your control so that you could ultimately get something done. Was this still when the family had individual shareholding across 13 sons, or was this when the business was listed?
1: Well, by the time I joined, because it was listed, some uncles had sold. And my father and another uncle had tried to consolidate by buying some of their brothers out. And so they, between the two of them, had about... Oh, just, I think, 15% or so of, of the of the company. And then, unfortunately, that uncle passed away rather suddenly. And so my father, they, so the shares were split back between him and my father. So my father kept, uh, kept the shares, and at that time, we had about maybe uh, 7% or so of the company. And we were probably the single largest shareholder. And so it was very fragmented, and we couldn't get the other uncles to to sell back to us. And in fact, what happened was that uh, when I joined, there was a group of uncles that engineered the sale of their block to a third party. Was
0: that related to you joining or was it just it happened around the same time?
1: It related to my joining. I think they did not want to see me there. Wow. Okay.
0: So they engineered the sale of their block and, and how much would that have represented of the shareholding?
1: At the end, they actually managed to sell um, about fifty percent, the buyer uh, was able to dislodge a block from a third party who held held it outside. You know, non family party that held that held a big block of shares as well. Together, they they had over fifty percent, and that was what was sold to the to Lam Chang Holdings, which was the buyer.
0: And so, this other firm gains control of your family business. You effectively lost control. Where does it go from here? How Do you do? You stay in the business or do you leave? And- oh,
1: yeah. so I was general manager. I'd been with the business for about four months at a time. So, But Lam Chang was very good. Uh, they said, look, we're not really interested in the uh, TCM business. What we wanted was the, the, list, the listing. And um, when the time comes, we want to dispose of this business. We'll give you first uh, right of refusal on it. And so it was a blessing in disguise because at that point, the control of the company being in, in just one hand, I could just, and it was a commercial sort of uh, organization. I could deal with them on rational grounds, you know, and so when the time came, they they, they said, this is the price, you know, can you match it? And I said, sure, I'll, I'll try. And I did. And that's how I managed to do the first buyout. So
0: they gained control of the business and they were... Largely looking for it because of the listing, you said. Is. So they were effectively backdoor listing their business. Were they using your? Uh,
1: in a in a way, they were already a listed company. It was a construction company. They wanted to have a second company. It was a, a property development business. Okay. And, and Yuan Holdings, as it was then known at the time, was very clean. There was no debt. There was cash. There was real estate. There was uh, and so on. And in terms of the assets that was in the company. was pretty solid. They So they converted everything into cash, including the operating business. And then they used that cash to buy other assets and turn it into a development company. Interesting. Okay. It was good for them. It was what they wanted anyway.
0: And so when you engineered the first buyout, how did you do it? Where did you find the cash? And did the entity remain listed and they just sold you the operating business in traditional Chinese medicine?
1: Correct. So they kept the listing. They sold the, the subsidiaries which were directly involved with the, the Chinese medicine business. And the price was, I think it was $21 million. And I managed to get the leverage on half of it because part of the assets included real estate. Right. So, okay. Yeah. So we put up, so I rounded up a couple of cousins and we put up the equity and Plus a bank loan for about half of the amount. Yep, that's how we did the first buyout.
0: And so, when you say rounded up a couple of cousins, we're no longer talking about your father's brothers, but these are your cousins at the. These are
1: my, These are fourth the generation of yeah, the children of my uncles who actually they were not part of the group that sold us out. So these uncles, the children of these uncles, were the ones who were my father's full brothers. In other words, they shared a mother, plus one more cousin who was the eldest son of my eldest uncle. My eldest uncle had passed away in the 1950s. And so uh, this cousin was the eldest cousin in our generation. And I wanted to to get him involved as the eldest in the generation. And he very kindly agreed. And he came in as the chairman of the company. He passed away um, about 13 years ago now. Gosh, sorry to hear that. Yeah, yeah. He was 80 when he passed away. He was much older than us.
0: Yeah. So let's pause here for a moment and maybe you can tell us just a little bit about the TCM business or the Yu Yang Sang business. For the benefit of the audience, you know, if someone's you know, outside of Asia listening to this, they're not familiar with the business. Can you give us a sense of. When you privatized the business, when you took back control of the business, what was its footprint? Where did it operate? And what were the main lines that it was operating in?
1: So Yu Song is basically a kind of old-fashioned apothecary. We call them uh, medical halls in this part of the world. And they, they started by dispensing loose herbs, which were then put together as prescriptions by Chinese uh, physicians. So when a Chinese physician sees in a patient, he would write out a prescription, the patient would come to our shop and we'll have it fulfilled by our staff putting these herbs together per dosage. So each dose might contain upwards of, I don't know, can be five, ten herbs at least. And then the patient would take it home and decoct it into like a soup and drink that. You know, so this is how medicine was was taken. Over time, some of these more classical formulations for certain ailments would then be made into pills or powders and be sold as such. Uh, so we, without having to have a prescription, you could actually go to the store and you could buy these more standardized uh, products in the form of the they're, they're traditional pills. So they, some places they call them tea pills. They're very small pills. like They look like ball bearings. Or they could come in a in a big ball, and which is basically herbs which are bound together by by honey, and then you mix it with uh, hot water and then you drink it as a soup. And so that's the traditional way of dispensing. And so that, that over time, we we created our own proprietary products and, and also these uh, classical products which were made it to, really to take a uh, form. And uh, a brand was eventually created. So all this started happening, particularly from the... From the end of the Second World War, we had a very good general manager in Hong Kong. Hong Kong was a separate part of the business at that time, but he, the general manager had some oversight over Singapore and Malaysia, and so they created a products using our brand and uh, selling through our shops. So the shops in those days were very traditional. There were six stores in Malaysia, one in Singapore, and two in Hong Kong, but we, Hong Kong was not part of our the business that I took over. So uh, the footprint was very small in that sense. Each of the stores in Malaysia were in, uh, located in the towns um, in the western uh, part of West Malaysia. Uh, and one of them actually, the original store in Goping closed down in the 70s because there was nobody living there anymore. The tin mines had worked out. So when I took over, Singapore was about almost half the business the one store, and then, or maybe, you know, 40% of the business and Malaysia comprised the rest, and some of them were very small. So we decided that the way to expand was to open more stores. My uncles had resisted opening stores because they felt that any new stores would cannibalize the existing one. But Singapore particularly had changed so much over the years. I mean, there was... One store in Chinatown isn't going to be able to cope uh, with the entire population. So I started opening in um, different locations. And especially after the buyout from, from longchang I, I had a free hand to open well, whatever stores that we felt was good. Uh, and so we expanded very quickly from the mid-90s onwards. And then the second wave of expansion happened after the... Uh, Consolidation of the Hong Kong business in 97. So that was the second buyout.
0: So before we get into the second buyout, because I think this is interesting, after you achieved the first buyout and consolidated, you had some cousins from your generation involved in the business. Was that the end of the politics? Were you free from the family factions? Could you then? run fast or were there still further speed bumps ahead with?
1: Yeah. So I guess, again, um, I could run fast in Singapore and Malaysia because we had total control. But the politics hadn't ended because my uncles, the ones that had sold us, were still running Hong Kong.
0: Right. So the ones ones that had sold the block against you effectively were were the owners in Hong Kong still?
1: Well, we were all owners, but they they were the ones more in charge in Hong Kong. Okay. So what happened then was that once we we, were, we were separated from Longchang the uncles had actually um they, Hong Kong had, had listed the Hong Kong business separately. The Hong Kong business was a little bit bigger than Singapore and Malaysia combined. And they had listed it but at the listing they did not disclose that the trademarks of Hong Kong were actually held by Singapore.
0: And it was the same
1: brand. It was you Yang was the same saying yeah actually what had happened was that in the early '80s, before I got involved in running the business, I actually made a recommendation to the then board to, in Singapore, to start registering trademarks. And Hong Kong at that time was still a proprietorship; they had not corporatized it from from my grandfather's estate. It was held in his personal name when he passed away. So, but whilst where Singapore and Malaysia were. Then corporatized in the 50s, Hong Kong had not been corporatized. And so they could not hold the trademarks. It we would, it would have had to be in the name of the trustees. And so we said, okay, Hong Kong itself didn't have the trademarks. Let's register the Yuan Sang trademark worldwide. Right. Yeah. Anyway, so when the uncles realized that they actually didn't have that trademark for Hong Kong, they sued us for it. Gosh,
0: so after finally getting back control of the business and buying it out, you ended up back in court fighting over trademarks with the family again.
1: Actually, they did have some trademarks, but these were logos that they had, they had trademarked and not not so much a the brand name. So what we did was create a, a brand name which was registrable. Yeah, so anyway, long story short, the action that they took upset some of the others. Sh- so public shareholders in, in the Hong Kong company. And um, and because the shareholding was fragmented, my cousins and I were able to consolidate a, a controlling interest in Hong Kong. And so then we then made a general offer to buy out everybody in Hong Kong. And that was the second buyout.
0: This is the second buyout. And did you do this in the public markets? You were just soaking up shares in the public markets whenever
1: you had the opportunity? What happened was that the between the cousins that, that were in the, Singapore-Malaysia business and uh, one of the other cousins. We had enough shares to, to together with us some purchase in the public market to get over 50%. And
0: achieved that. Uh, I assume some of the uncles, were they still displeased with that or were they welcoming?
1: I don't think they were very pleased, but they they, they exceeded and they they agreed to sell. So at that time, the second buyout, the, the, the numbers were bigger so I had to get the help of, of a outside, what we call a private equity fund today. In those days, they call themselves venture capital, but it was a, effectively a PE fund that helped to finance us.
0: And the PE fund, were they comfortable in backing what was largely a family-owned and controlled firm? Because I imagine, you know, I talk to a lot of family-owned firms today and partnering with PE is challenging at times because of the differing time horizons. You know, PE often wants to return their fund within five years or, or something similar, and the family is looking to own it forever. So I'm curious if you had to come to terms around that. Were the PE partner only there as a bridge for a period of time, or were they in it for capital?
1: Yeah, I think that was understood from the beginning that what their time horizon, well, it would have been three to five years, basically. And we were quite, all, all the cousins that were the owners at the time, had worked for non-family businesses, so we kind of understood the kind of uh, culture that was needed and the, the expectations of the PE. You know, so it was we had no problems. I think we we had a good understanding. It was and, it was, and because we had been listed anyway previously. We always managed the company with on the basis of of a list a list code. So the corporate governance was still very much as if they were... It was very were clean. Still, yeah, 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 clean. So I, I, we never had that kind of problem. Yep. And
0: after they accepted the general offer, did that delist the business in Hong Kong? And did you end up with a, an overall private entity?
1: Correct. That's what exactly what happened. So we formed a, a holding company to hold both the Singapore and the Hong Kong entities, which eventually got restructured into what it is today.
0: So the private equity partner that you had for that transaction to help with the general offer in Hong Kong, were they just in the business for a, a short number of years? How did that play out? Are they still a shareholder today? Or, or?
1: We completed the transaction in 97 and there was a big dot com boom and bust right after that it was actually right after the completion of the deal the asian financial crisis happened (laughs) (laughs) great timing yeah yeah i remember that first year that was pretty scary but there was a window in the year 2000 when the market sort of recovered a little bit and we managed to do an ipo at that point in time and, and the pe fund got out they couldn't continue because they were you know because of what was happening in the, in the markets, they couldn't raise the second fund, so they decided to just liquidate everything and, and call it quits.
0: This is a truly uh, complex story, as, as it is for most uh, family firms, but there's usually not this much public activity, which fascinates me. So yeah, you just mentioned... A lot of public in the...
1: information is quite easy to, for me to talk about it.
0: Yes, yeah. And and in the early 2000s, you're saying that the consolidated business ipo would once again, so this is effectively the third time that there's a public entity involved.
1: Correct. Correct. <laughs> okay. So, that was the third buyout because I just prior to IPO, basically, I had to arrange to buy out the shares of the fund before listing. Otherwise, they would have been, they would have to hold the shares under a moratorium. They would have been locked up. Yes, they would be locked up. So, uh, again, we had uh, more leverage <laughs> and did the third buyout.
0: So in terms of liquidating the PE, did you simply use bank debt and leverage to do that? Or did you have to bring in another external shareholder to replace them? No, before we the to, the, well,
1: the, the external shareholder was the public because the, the IPO paid for some of that. And some of it was uh, bank debt and so on. Yeah.
0: So so let's go back to the early 2000s. You just IPO'd the, the company, in effect, bringing it in some way, shape or form to the public markets for the third time. What was the motivation for that? Was that the PE company pushing you to say, we need a way to liquidate? Or was that your own yeah. motivation <laughs> to run a well-governed public
1: entity? No, I think the, it was the first was to pay off the, the PE, basically. I'm fairly indifferent about having a public company. Well, on the basis that the family is looking at on a long-term basis, being publicly listed is it's nice to have. And it's in a sense that... it. It kind of gives some sort of value to the shareholdings, and if the, any of the cousins uh, wanted to monetize, they, they, there was a basis for them to do so. And effectively, that's what happened later on. But there's a price to to the company. If it's wholly private, then it's it's harder to figure out what is the so called market value, right?
0: And I imagine it provides some confidence to family members too, because it ensures there's robust reporting and governance structures in place to to meet the expectations of a public market.
1: Yeah. I, I think the other thing that was beneficial was that actually it's, it's a profile. As, as a public company, you get a higher profile. It's easier to get your name out in the media, as it were. So that that helped to some extent, I think. As a consumer goods company, I think it does give some confidence to consumers that we we are a public company. You know, Absolutely. Yes. So that that I think that that helped at that point in time for for the company. And
0: let's come back to this issue of ownership and control. So you took the business public again, but did the family still have a controlling stake in it despite it being publicly listed, or were you fragmented again into a minority position?
1: The family is a group held close to close to seventy percent, sixty something percent of, of of the company at the end. Yeah, after the IPO. But within the family group, there was no dominant majority. So no one single family member or family members group had 50% of the company. I think mean, we all had, I, I, my, my uh, cousin and I, between us, we had about 20 uh, something percent each. Okay. So that was about the, that was the, we were the two largest shareholders within the family group. And when
0: you say the family groups or the shareholding across the groups, we're no longer talking about the thirteen sons and and no, all of no, those okay. various children. This is the pruned family tree, yeah. the consolidated yeah. version. Yeah, yeah, four cousins, four cousins.
1: Okay, yeah, but four cousins represented four family groups. You understand? Because I I represented my own immediate family too, my siblings, and, and also and similarly with the other cousins. And so that group of four. Were you cooperative, or were there
0: also family politics? To
1: no, no, we're totally cooperative. And did you ever
0: interface with the third generation again? Were they welcome back into the business at at any point, or did you have a clean slate to move forward? I think that
1: the, what's funny, in a way, is that at a social level, everything remained the same. So we still would have some social gatherings where we we meet. The uncles and we just act as if nothing happened wow but we just you know just didn't do business with them and that worked that was okay that was okay i mean still some of the other uncles were kind of on the fence although they were part of the selling group so i never went and asked them why the hell did you do this in a way i just just accepted whatever the decision was and just move on
0: so let's continue you You IPO'd the business. It's now in the public markets, early 2000s. Was this another period of growth for the
1: business? Yeah, huge growth from 1997 onwards. Once we got the Hong Kong business, everything was under one roof. And I was then able to start the uh, group-wide rebranding exercise. And so the the name and the logo and everything else that you see today stem from that time. So it took us uh, about two years to work out the, the, the brand, the new logo, which we launched in 1999 for our 120th anniversary, and um, redesigned the stores, redesigned the packaging. That was a very major thing for us. Having to persuade some of the team members that we needed to do this took a bit of doing, I think. But at the time, once they, they saw some initial success, especially the stores, because we were retailers, and we started opening open stores all over the place between 93 94 to 97 only Singapore Malaysia had an expansion in stores but after 97 Hong Kong also started to expand so we had a huge growth where we we're opening 20 30 stores a year sort of thing wow that's significant growth yeah 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 so that powers right up to the IPO and and beyond the IPO in 2000 I think that probably the period from 97 for about 10 years was a was a very good period of growth for us. And it was steady. We, In spite of the Asian financial crisis, in spite of the dot-com bust, in spite of uh, 9-11, in spite of SARS, and in spite of the global financial crisis, we had positive growth every year.
0: That's incredible. There's not too many businesses that could say that in this region throughout all of those years. That's, that's a great fact, track record. The,
1: the only time we didn't grow was the last few years when we hit the headwinds in Hong Kong, starting with the uh, Occupy Central movement. And even then, Hong Kong was flat. The other countries grew. So net-net, we still had some growth. But and only until now, with COVID-19, that we have seen uh, negative growth. Yeah. And that's because we, physically we had no stores. Couldn't open. Were, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So from the early
0: 2000 IPO through until today, there's been another change in uh, ownership and control by the sounds of it because the business is no longer publicly listed. How did that come about?
1: I suppose by about 2015 or so, 2015, 2016, my cousin was a equally large shareholder. He wanted to exit. So I, I, I didn't have um, enough cash to buy him out. I had to find a way to find a buyer for for, for him. So we spoke to some, we went through a process of talking to different institutions and we decided that uh, we would settle on the, on this two company called Tower and uh, the other was Tamasic. And so they came in and they they said that if we're going to buy out your cousin, we might as well do a um, privatization as well. Interesting. So the
0: motivation here was to buy out your cousin who also held a large minority so that you didn't lose control, because he could have just sold on the public markets. I imagine, but yeah,
1: but you yeah, didn't want him yeah. to do that. Yeah, he could have done that. You know, if if um, if, if I didn't find a uh, a buyer to take him out. Right.
0: Okay. So he he wanted to sell. He sold a large minority block or a, or a significant minority block, and you brought in two institutional shareholders to help finance that. Now this is interesting again because it, it brings me back to the question of the timeline of external shareholders willing to invest their funds. Was there another conversation around the three to five or five to seven year fund period again with these uh, shareholders? Or are they more a permanent hold style of a shareholder this time?
1: No, I think once you have institutional shareholders, in fact, any shareholders, it's very hard to say this is forever. And I think we understood that. You know, I think although... In the case of these particular institutions, they they were not a short term, perhaps as some others. When we went through the, the process, we found that there were some PE funds which the upfront would tell you that they want to get out within a certain period of time, and so on. Anyway, you know, you can see it was going to be quite difficult for us to, to to sort of play along with that kind of timeline. But if you really need to take a longer term view, but with the understanding that you. They will be getting out at some stage. I mean, you just have to accept that, and then we have to see how how best we could manage after that with the new shareholders.
0: And with that transaction, did the family lose control, or did you maintain a majority between you?
1: As a group, we lost control, so there's no single major shareholder today. So you know, everyone's a everyone's a minority basically. But that's okay, yeah, because I. I mean, the, the, the thinking there is that if you want to really institutionalize the business, it cannot be in family hands forever because of the, the, the same problem. Unless you have a different structure, it was just in, if the family owned it and nobody else. The family itself could adjust the shareholdings such that there is some control. I think one of the problems that we had from the third generation was that there's no, nobody called the shots and and yet they and yet because they were individuals, they didn't think as institutions. They just thought purely about their own situation, you know. Whilst the institution, someone like Tamasek or someone, you know, would, would have to think in different terms, especially with governance and, and long term sort of strategies.
0: And so, what does that mean for the family now? Is there a, a fifth generation that is planning to or has joined the business and? and do your institutional shareholders have any sort of veto rights over that or are they just happy to be along for the ride and continue to let the family largely control what has been a successful business for a great number of years
1: no i, I think it's not about management control by the family but there are two fifth generation members in the in the fam- in the business already today and hopefully they would they have some part to play going forward in terms of the leadership of the company i think that you know when an institution buys into a business like ours, you know, to a large extent, they also buy into the culture that's been set up there by the family and actually be crazy just to lose it. I think what you want to try and do is try and preserve the culture, but manage it in as uh, modern and efficient way as possible without trying to kill the the original culture. It's a very hard balance. It's not easy. You know, it's something which um, I think we all of us learn, and there will be stumbling blocks.
0: And I was going to ask how you manage or how you balance the family's needs with those of your institutional shareholders. Does it largely behave still like a public company in that it's it's fragmented now? It's well governed. There's reports, and and you know is that how it's treated, or is there still at times? A little bit of tension between this is a family firm or it's an institutionalized firm.
1: Well, I do, I, we have to be very careful to say that we're no longer a family a family business. It's not run by the family. We, were, in fact, we've always had professional managers anyway, all the way back from my grandfather's time. But my grandfather never ran the business anyway, and he had uh, he had non family managers running it, and it went all the way through to my uncle's time. And, and even to my time I mean you, you know I was my cousin and i we were two cousins who were active in management and everybody else was non-family so the growth of the of the business really was because we had very good people running the business who were non-families and they but they I think they, they saw themselves almost as family you have to in the family business I think you have to get total buy-in from the whole company that you know you have to they have to agree with your your vision, mission. And um, this is what we're trying to achieve with the business. So it, I think it's a little bit different to a sort of a big corporate uh, MNC type where they have, they say all these things, but in reality, th- there's a lot of politics within, within these companies. But I mean, I'm not saying there's no politics at all, but I, I think with the family-run business at that time, if you have a strong enough leadership Then you can avoid some of these politics. When my uncles were running it, then they were not really; they didn't see in those terms, and that's why the business remained small because that's all they could manage.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting perspective.
1: So, again, on the
0: fifth generation, you said there's two members already in the business. Was that something that was encouraged across the family? Were, Were they onboarded intentionally and nurtured into the business, or? did they just grow up around it and ultimately choose that as a path
1: that they found interesting individually? I think it's that because both one is my son uh, and one is a niece. I think they're interested in the business itself. Yep. You know, so both of them worked for other people for several years before joining the business. And they have uh, specific skills that they could bring to the business. So you you have the skills, you have the interest. And the way, yes, you have you do imbue some of that. Yep. Yep. Well, I think it's very important. When we talk about differentiations and all that, branding, it really is, a lot of it goes back to how we see the heritage, how we see our culture, and how do we differentiate from competitors? These are very non-tangible factors. It's not just about balance sheet. You know, It's not just about the financial ratios and things like that you have to bring in the heart so we hope that going forward what well, we are the stewards of this company going going in future would understand that
0: absolutely it brings the real substance to the business and i'm sure the the fifth generation grew up around it and bring some of that history and culture with them no doubt so they'll play an important role in stewarding the business as
1: well yeah, so that, that's the way I saw it. I mean, that's basically, that's where I came from. I know nothing about traditional Chinese medicine. My background is very, very different. I still don't know anything. You know? I just ask <laughs> questions. Um, How so long have you been that,
0: in the business now? 30 years. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, you've still got time to figure it you, out, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, you learn a little bit along the way.
0: Yeah. So I, I'd be curious to turn to the personal side, when we talk about family governance now, I'm curious whether or not your immediate family or even the group of four of you, whether or not there's a constitution or a charter or any sort of frequency of family meetings that you subscribe to, to try and manage the business of family, given the complexity that you've been through over all of these years.
1: Yeah, I think we're talking at two levels. One is at the company level, the family members, the company level, where the four we were four cousins basically, uh, and then so we would we don't have a constitution, just have some understanding between us, and we would have meetings between the four, not company meetings, we're just like shareholder meetings, if you like, and this continue uh, even after my cousin passed away. So we would, not um, I think, at one stage we we had a. Had an outside uh, facilitator who helped put together a meeting once a year, and we sort of review review what's been happening and, and the relationship between the, the three of us you know, at that time. Of course, that's no longer valid because uh, the, the, my cousin sold out, and the other cousin has is is really not active at all at the, in the business at all. So, but at these, the, the other level, of course, is my own immediate family. Uh, so we are still shareholders, and I have shareholders who are my siblings as well as my children. Would eventually, well, some of them are already shareholders. So they would teach them how to deal with all this. And
0: is that something that you you're currently teaching them, or that you yeah, have yeah, on the I agenda?
1: Mean, we, have, we we do this all the time. No, we, we have we have some uh, regular discussions, and because my son is in the business anyway, so he has input. So, I, my, with my siblings, it's just a regular update. We don't have a constitution as such, you know, but just an understanding that there is a there's sort of a, I suppose you call it a right of first refusal if they ever want to sell their shares. Right. That's a common understanding between you, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's so nothing written, no? Is that enough? Can I ask that question? Is that. I think between us, yeah. I think there's enough trust yep. for that to happen. Unlike what happened with. Um, my father's generation.
0: And is that just the closeness of the relationships you think that makes the difference that you've always worked cooperatively with each other and largely seen things the same way that you feel that you would be given first right of refusal if somebody wanted to uh, sell down? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. I don't think there's there's an issue about that. Mm, That's terrific. All right. So this
0: has been a a long and winding story, which I am deeply fascinated about. So I, I really appreciate you sharing it with us. One thing I wanted to ask briefly about is failure. Is there anything that you ascribe to a failure that actually set you up for later success? Is there a favorite failure along this journey that helped shape the story that's ultimately played out?
1: I think we're kind of lucky in the sense that our failures in the business came later rather than earlier. If we had failed in terms of our retail expansion... We have continued growing the way we did. We were lucky in the sense that um, when we were actively opening stores, we didn't see any major sort of failure in terms of of store locations or whatever issues are related to, to a retail business. So that part of it was okay, but then we started to get more ambitious and tried different things in terms of diversifying the business, if you like, or expanding it. And that's where the failures came in. So we've had quite a lot of failures on the business side. And we've learned, we try to learn from failure. It's never, it's never about the idea. The idea is always sound, I think. But it's partly timing and execution. So I suppose the one thing that we learned from one failure was, was the clinic business. So we have a quite a decent, it's not very big, but it's a small, profitable clinic business today. And we we actually saw open clinics. We started an open clinic business in Australia first. That was the the, the first time we tried a clinic business and we thought the clinic business would work in Australia um, because we had a, a vision of a um, integrative clinic model. Unfortunately, it did not succeed in Australia and we sold the clinics partly because um, we couldn't get the scale going. But that led us to We worked the clinic model uh, in Singapore with pure TCM clinics. And that's now over 15 years. It's still going okay. So we learned what we did wrong in Australia and we applied it here.
0: How do you differentiate clinic to the pharmacy model? Is it the same thing or is it different?
1: Different. The retail stores is a pure retail store. So unlike some of our traditional competitors, whereby the retail store is managed or owned by a uh, TCM physician who has a clinic at the back of it sort of thing, we separated. We never had physicians because the TCM physicians were the ones that were sending customers to ask us because we carried the full range of herbs, which most of the smaller medical halls would not be able to. But our, our clinic, we felt that there was a gap in the market to have a professionally run TCM clinic which capture non-traditional users of TCM. And that's what we did. So I think we, we opened up the market in that sense. So our clinics are run just like any other medical clinic. So it's not a retail store at all. We would have them in medical centers and things like that. They are all standalone, but they are not a store. They are a pure clinic.
0: And they've since been proven to be successful in Singapore.
1: Yes, yes. Fantastic. That's about failure. <laughs> um, and many others, uh, you know, we tried different types of uh, retail uh, concepts and so on. I think largely the, we apply some of the things that you learn from the failure into your existing business. Are there any learnings on the
0: family side that you would reflect on after all that you've been through with the yeah, various I
1: factions? Think, I, yeah, I, I, I think because I observed the way that my, my father's generation interacted and I think that there's, I suppose, not enough real communication between them because there was a big gap in age and and so on so i, I think if only they could have learned to trust each other and, and talk to each other i think the family business today would be very different so i try to avoid that with my children and try and, so we try to get everybody to communicate so from from a fairly um Young age, we've had family forums. Every, every, you know, so we have we, we have a forum sort of meeting every year with with my own immediate family from the time that the children were teenagers. Excellent.
0: And what sort of things do you cover in an annual family forum?
1: Yeah, you I basically also review the past twelve months and and the next twelve months. You know, uh, and now that my son is also YPO and my daughter is YNG, they are both in forums. They kind of understand all this, and so I have two more sons who are not, who are not in forums. They're not out of YNG, and G, but uh, they, they're getting the idea because they they've been through this process for quite a, quite a long time now. And
0: that means that that each individual is contributing to these family forums. It's not you standing up at the front of the room and and giving a recount of the past year. And the <laughs>
1: no, 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 it's not. It's not what it's supposed to be. So you try to try and dive a bit deeper. And sometimes it's, it's hard, you know, it's, it gets very emotional.
0: While you're talking about your kids, that actually leads us to our final question. And it's one that we explore with all of our guests. Imagine that you're writing a letter to your children. What is one lesson or idea that you don't think many parents would mention, but you consider important to understand?
1: I wonder how many parents really talk about the time that they are no longer around because especially with Asians, you know, death is kind of a taboo subject. So my my letter to my children would be, I suppose, you know, about the time that I am no longer here, and we have to face the reality of that. of, of that So, you know, what is it that you would like to see, perhaps, or what sort of guidance can you give them when I'm no longer around? Uh, a lot of times, I about Asian parents, maybe all parents, like to tell the children what they should be doing but I I, I think I would look at the other way and say that look you know when I'm dead and gone they should look at themselves and see have they followed the path that we walked together following the same direction rather than just going often in, in, in a totally different direction from what we were what we were set out to do as a family so I think trying to get a when we're still around, we try and get them to follow the path, and and hopefully that when we're not around, that they will still continue on that path. And so I think that the the thing that we don't talk about is when we're not here. Or maybe nowadays more people are willing to talk about that. But certainly, my father's still alive. So I, but I think he, he's ninety seven years old. So I, I think at some stage he has to face that that reality as well. But for the, certainly, it's not a subject that. That his generation was uh, willing to talk about
0: yeah i think it's a powerful lesson it's a challenging topic but one that can be very powerful if it's handled well so i like that i think that's a, a great one to, to mention and in answering the question it's certainly not something that many people have mentioned before so i appreciate you sharing that with us richard and this has been a wonderful conversation it's taken me uh, some time to try and wrap my head around the journey that your family and your business has been on, but it's a fascinating one. And I'm really grateful that you've taken the time to share it with us today. Thank you again.
1: It was my pleasure, Mike. Thank you very much. Some memories have come flooding back when I talk. It's obviously not every day you think about these things. Um, uh, it's been great to uh, relive some of those memories with you. And hopefully we can
0: help preserve them for you in this audio. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yes, please. Thanks, Richard. Thanks a lot. To find more episodes of the Business of Family podcast, go to businessoffamily.net. You can also sign up for my email list at newsletter.mikeboyd.com.au. After you sign up, you'll receive immediate access to all past issues and then one email per week. You can also follow me on Twitter using at Boyd. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes, which will help more people discover the business of family. Thank you so much for listening.